0: There's a particular song called Soda Pop that's just, in general, talking about partying and having fun.
1: That was Britney Spears talking about her song, Soda Pop. In this episode of the Original Doll Podcast, I let you know why Britney Spears has often joked about song Soda Pop was integral in the creation of Britney's sound and her album, as well as explaining why the offbeat pseudo-dance hall hit made sense for her to do while she was looking to be fully signed to Jive Records. And why many should reference this when talking about Britney Spears' vocals. I'm James Rodriguez-Horton, an independent Latino podcaster. I created the Original Doll podcast to go behind the scenes of pop culture. I've interviewed producers, songwriters, actors, and more to give you, the listener, a deeper look into the parts that created the Original Doll, Britney Spears. Don't you want my
0: iconography?
1: Don't you understand? Don't you want to aim for stars you see? Don't you want my iconography? Let's rewind back to 1971. Zamba, a corporation, would be started by musicians Clive Calder and Ralph Simon. Zamba would be a publishing and management company. You see, they chose to avoid the financial pitfalls that accompany many startup record labels. So the duo, well, they decided to stick with songwriters and publishers rather than recording artists. The first person on the Zamba roster was none other than prolific country and pop songwriter Robert Mutt-Lang. If you listen to any of Shania Twain's first few albums, you'd hear production and lyrics by Lang. In 1999, Lang and his then wife Twain would take part in the recording of Britney Spears' sophomore album, Oops, I Did It Again. The single that Lang would produce would be released to radio in 2001 and it would be called Don't Let Me Be the Last to Know. Interestingly enough, Britney Spears would tell Billboard Magazine that, quote unquote, with the first album, I didn't get to show off my voice. The songs were great, but they weren't very challenging. This song is incredible. It's going to surprise people in the best way. Now let's go back to the 1970s. Zomba would decide they would move over to the United States and they would begin working with record industry guru Clive Davis and his label Arista. Arista would record music by Zomba's clients. In 1981, Zumba decided to enter into the record label business. Jive Records was born, the same year as Britney Spears. During its inaugural year, Jive Group, Flock of Seagulls, would record their new wave synth pop hit, I Run So Far Away. Synth pop would play a role in the recording career of Britney Spears. In 1982, Clive Calder would cross paths with Barry Weiss, a recent college graduate. Now, Weiss would introduce Calder to the hip-hop scene in New York City. Together, they would start cultivating musicians and their work. One such group was Houdini, which was comprised of Jaleel Hutchins, John Fletcher, and Grandmaster D. The Brooklyn-based group would see success with their 1982 hit song, Magic's Wand. The single would chart on the hip-hop and dance charts in the United States. In the late 1980s, Jive Records would also become home to such megastars as DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince and Too Short. In 1991, after their 10-year distribution deal with RCA would expire, Bartlesman Music Group, also known as BMG, would acquire a minority share in the label and begin to distribute its records directly. Now, this is why many fans who collected CDs or vinyl at the time might see the Jive logo or the Zamba logo or the BMG logo on the music product. Through his time at Jive, Clive Calder would be involved in every aspect of music that passed through the label. You see, Jive's motivation was simple. Money. Former Jive label artist and producer D-Nice stated to 24-7 Hip Hop, Jive, unlike Def Jam, would spend two to $300,000 to produce an album. Now, Zomba slash Jive wanted self-contained groups, which meant, well, that the music came from the groups themselves. No outsourcing. There was nowhere in the budget for hiring an, let's say, outside entity to produce music for a group. The group had to make their own music. They had to produce their own beats. Most of Jive's roster was self-produced, A great example of that is a Tribe called Quest. Here's a little background on Tribe. In early 1989, the group signed a demo deal with Geffen Records, and they would produce a five-song demo, which happened to include their future single, I Left My Wallet in El Segundo. Geffen decided against offering the group a recording contract, and they ultimately let the group go find another home. And after many offers and many meetings with labels, the group decided to sign with Jive, because at the time, Jive was seen as an independent rap label. Now, the sort of demo deal, the sort of get out clause, that was the same thing that Britney Spears had with Jive. In the I Have Nothing episode of the Original Doll podcast, I talked about Clive Calder being frugal with money. Calder thought Britney Spears could be the U.S. version of Robin. So what Calder did was he offered Britney a contract with a get-out clause. Now this stipulated that Jive could cancel the deal in 90 days with no further commitment if the A&R person decided, well, the album wasn't going to work. So Steve Lunt was designated as Britney Spears' A&R person. The label brought Britney to New York and put her into Jive's penthouse with her chaperone Felicia Calada. Because Jive was still a predominantly rap and R&B label, almost all of the songwriters were "quote unquote" urban songwriters. Now you see the use of the term "urban" was used heavily in the 80s and 90s. Now Jive only had one pop producer, Eric Foster White, who was in fact signed to Zamba Publishing. Once again in-house. Foster White and Britney went to New Jersey to work on her sound. Britney Spears had originally envisioned herself doing Cheryl Crow music, but younger. Steve Lunt and Eric Foster White, well, they pushed Britney into a teen pop direction, which Britney liked because, well, she could dance to it. White also got Britney to sing higher. Now, Britney, she stated that they had worked on 10 songs together, her and Foster White. Now, White would collaborate with Michael H. St. Clair Henry, who Britney Spears fans might know now as rapper Mickey Basie. Together, they would eventually see their songs Thinking About You and Soda Pop make it onto Britney Spears' debut album, Baby One More Time. Before Britney would record her breakthrough debut single, Baby One More Time, she and Foster White would record Soda Pop, It About You, Email My Heart, I Will Still Love You, and the cover, The Beat Goes On, and for those new to the podcast, I was able to interview one of the producers, and you could find it on the Beat Goes On episode of the original doll podcast. Britney Spears and Eric Foster White would also work on a cover of The Jet Song, you got it all and you can hear all about that song in our episode you got it all and hear exclusively what the songwriter thought of britney spears's version and the heartbreaking story behind the song now these demos that white and spears worked with well they were sent to jive with the hopes of turning this kind of development deal into recording contract well the label didn't feel that they had any hits, so they turned to Swedish hit maker Max Martin. And we'll go into that further in our Baby One More Time episode in 2021. And here's the thing, a little bit of information on that. We're also going to solve the question often debated, what was the release date of the single Baby One More Time and when was it first heard on radio? Spoiler alert, the single didn't hit radio on October 23rd as many people state. Now back to this episode. Here's where we're at. Now you know where Britney was at when she was recording these songs. She was trying to turn her development deal into a recording contract in 90 days. She was hoping to sign with Jive and Jive up until that point, well they were predominantly R&B and rap. So Spears had to work with Jive's only pop producer who had to write the songs himself, because that was the culture at Jive, keeping everything in-house. So now you know why Eric Foster White is listed as a writer on half of Britney Spears' 1999 debut album. And our people, artists in repertoire, they talk about the importance of finding the right sound for a new artist. Early demos show that Britney was being taken into an R&B path. Britney was vying for a spot on the label with recording artist R. Kelly, who at the time was seeing great success on radio and sales. R. Kelly's protege, Aaliyah, was signed to Jive. After allegations of misconduct and more, Aaliyah left the label and signed with Atlantic Records. In a future episode of the Original Dal Podcast, I'm going to deep dive into the career of Aaliyah, who in fact was coined the Princess of R&B. You see, as a personal opinion, I truly believe that Britney Spears' career was impacted by the legacy of Aaliyah. Aaliyah carried on the tradition of music videos with synchronized choreography and had a like this young energy that she brought to her music and her videos. Labels for better or worse, will try to capitalize on their own artists. Look at the success of Backstreet Boys on Jive and the in-house copying to create and sync. Now, Jive, having lost Aaliyah to a different label, they did not have a new generation's Janet Jackson or younger Madonna to tap into the market. Some didn't believe that there was any place for a new Debbie Gibson. But Jive knew that they did not have a young female performer to fill in the gap where Aaliyah was. So they needed to see if they could sign an artist that would have the likability of a pop star, but the innocence of someone not tainted by the world. Enter Soda Pop. This bizarre, upbeat track that some skip if they're playing the vinyl or the CD, Soda pop was important because it allowed the label to see if Britney could handle something other than Euro pop. Now, here's the thing to keep in mind: Max Martin still would consider his first song with Britney, "Baby One More Time," to be R&B. He still refers that to an R&B song. So, at the time, the label, well, the label jive, they needed to see if Britney could handle anything more than pop. So they wanted to see if she could do anything with R&B or a dance hall tinge, things that the label was known for at the time, things that made jive successful. Now the question was, could they find those hits for her in-house? Now one thing to note for the listener is that on the tracks that Spears worked with, with Eric Foster White, she handled a lot of her own backing vocals. This once again coincided with Jive's insistence on keeping everything self-contained. Do not pay for a choir or backing vocalists. Have your own artists record their own harmonies. For this episode, I interviewed Michael Tirizawa about the song and specifically Britney's vocals on the tracks. And here's her insight. Hi, Maiko Tirazawa. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Original Doll Podcast, where we're deep diving into Soda Pop.
0: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: <laughs> so give, give the, the, the audience, the listeners, a little background of your, your music background, your vocal training, things like that.
0: Sure. Um, well, I've always had an interest in acting and music. So I've been doing like school shows and things like that since I was in uh, probably, I think, right after elementary school. So since sixth grade, um, when I was younger, I, I did some uh, clogging. I was always participating in musical theater, chorus, women's quartet, all kinds of things all through school and uh, took some piano lessons when I was younger. And I've been uh, taking lessons at the voice lab for I wanna say the last three year, I wanna say maybe three years in Chicago. And I've also been actively uh, doing a lot of musical theater
1: what I did was for the, the listener, I had given Maiko a kind of homework assignment. Take a listen to the song, get your vibes, get your feels. So first and foremost, Maiko, did you know, did you listen to Britney from the first album? Did you know her music then? Did you have the CD back in
0: 1999? I did. I, I do remember having that CD when I was younger, but it had been years since I had listened to it until you uh, told me about it. and. um Yeah, listening back to like that first album, I did recognize quite a few of those songs because I I, know I did listen to them a lot, but I was surprised how I didn't remember quite a few of them as well.
1: (laughs) Well, and that was one of those things that I think, and I talk about this earlier in this episode, where the labels at the time really wanted to front load a CD so that you just played the hits right away. You're not putting your number one song as in song or track number 12, you know? And it's very much like a a musical in the sense of you need to bring people in. If that first song is a no-go, they may skip to the next one or they may just go not listening. So with Britney's voice, with Britney's music, with Soda Pop itself, tell me a little bit about what you think um, is very Britney in this song and what you think is maybe a tone or anything that she had before, maybe she has now, doesn't have now, you know, that sort of thing. Let's talk about the vocal qualities, techniques and things like that.
0: Sure, well, uh, specifically with uh, Soda Pop, I, I definitely noticed that it sounded more like her when she was singing as a child, when you look at, at the videos of her in like Mickey Mouse Club and things like that, it's a, a chestier, fuller sound, as opposed to songs like Baby One More Time, where you get more of that classic Britney, that light, uh, sound. Um, so that's definitely the first thing you'll notice is definitely the the heavier use of her chest voice in that song in particular.
1: And did you think at the time, because there's often discussions and everyone, since Britney Spears has broken into the pop world, um, a lot of people have a tendency to disregard her vocal abilities or even say she doesn't have any vocal abilities. What do you think From you, who was somebody who ultimately was a child performer as well, who'd been around child performers, what do you think about her quality, her tone, her voice, even from those, whether it was the Star Search days or Mickey Mouse Club days, and even in the Soda Pop, was her voice more advanced? Was it average? What do you think?
0: I think uh, what kind of separated Brittany is that she has such a unique tone to her voice that regardless of whether she's singing soda pop or baby one more time, you still hear that Britney quality in her voice. And I think she just, she did have a lot of raw, natural talent. Um, But she started so young and just kind of dove right into it that I'm, I'm curious to see what would have happened with like more, maybe like a classical, like an opera type training, how that may have developed her voice differently as opposed to the pop sound that she has now.
1: Absolutely. And so for you then, and for the listener here, can you talk a little bit about just in general musicality? Like when you're in your thirties, your voice is vastly different than your voice was when you were six or even 16 or even 21. Do you see a change specifically for your own voice? Do you think you've maintained the same tone? Do you think it matures and it changes over time?
0: I know just in the last like, Three or four years that I have been taking voice lessons uh, at the voice lab. My voice has definitely changed quite a bit. Uh, it still sounds like me, but it's the first time I, my, my vocal coach is more opera trained. That's a perspective that I had never really explored. Uh, being younger, I was more, I guess I related more to Brittany because she was just like, you know, more of like a belter as a, as a young performer. And all I did was felt, I had no head voice. I did not know what a mix was. I would just kind of, you know, I like to call it shouting on pitch. And people seem to like that because it's a very pop kind of sound, but uh, the technique was all sorts of a disaster. And I I was getting raspy, losing my voice. But, so I I guess now I, I have a little bit more of a balance. It's still always a working progress, but, there, there's a lot of the shift from only belting to now kind of exploring my my mix and my head voice.
1: So let's talk a little bit about that, the chest voice, head voice. And I wanna go into specifically, because part of this episode, um, I wanted to bring to the listener, the, the theory that I have that this song was truly an important part of her discography. It was a, truly a part of her becoming who she is and who she continues to be. So in, you know, in layman's terms, for for those of us that might not know, what is the chest voice, head voice in that blend that you referred to? Like, give us an example or kind of explain what that is.
0: Sure. Um, let's, like, uh, let's use, like, baby one more time as a, as an example. Like, if I were to sing that in, like, full chest voice it would be like oh baby baby how was i supposed to know and then you go more into like a mix and it'll be like oh baby baby so it's like a little bit lighter you're not pushing out the sound quite as much uh there's definitely more voice that are it's feeling more like it's in your head as opposed to just like shouting and then if you go like you know, more head voices. Oh, baby. I I think I just changed the key there, (laughs) but (laughs) it's a little more difficult for me to take a lower sound into my head voice, uh, which Mm -hmm. a lot of people will experience. So it's definitely something you have to kind of flip up.
1: And so is there, so in this song, Soda Pop, because the reason why I think um, it's important in her discography is she does her own backing vocals. And I talked about this in the episode that early on, the label basically said, we're keeping costs down. You're going to basically do your own backing vocals so that you're singing this. So let's talk a little bit about that. Something that maybe people that aren't um, musically inclined uh, might not notice. In the song, you hear the main melody of Britney singing Soda Pop. Then you hear these other an angelic voice, a little bit of deeper voice. So talk a little bit about that.
0: Sure, um, yeah, especially in soda pop, like the balance of the, the different harmonies, sometimes what you think is the melody, I feel like they're actually pushing a harmony. Um, so you're not really listening to the melody line and they've kind of like, that part has just turned down a little bit and you, you start thinking, oh, that part of the harmony is the melody. Uh, which makes it easy in like the concerts and things uh, when you're looking at a live performance, you don't always have to sing the mel- the melody. you can sing a lower harmony if if you're on stage dancing around and you know it's harder to hit the higher notes. So sing the lower harmony, and it's still very instantly recognizable.
1: Does using the lower voice like, uh, is that less effort, let's say, while moving on stage than the head voice or you know the the higher notes.
0: In my personal experience, I feel like I don't need as much breath support when I'm belting. I feel like I can belt out and be completely out of breath and still push it out. If you're kind of using that that mix or the head voice, I feel like the breath support and 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 just support in general is so much more important and your voice can break or crack or things like that if if you're running out of support if you're just belting out, you're just pushing the the sound out so much that I feel like it's easier to get away with on stage because you can push through that differently.
1: So what is it about the, what would the audience gain by listening to, I mean, beyond just the melody, what does the listener get by hearing those harmonies? What does that do for the listener? Why wouldn't, why, why do they need a harmony or why would they choose it?
0: Well, a a harmony just makes a a beautiful full sound. Um, What's interesting about harmonies is that I I know I've had like friends and things in the past and people who aren't musically trained, they don't always like look for a harmony like a musical person might. And then I hear them singing and they're singing the harmony, thinking it's the melody. And it's so funny what people's ears will naturally grasp onto. So it kind of gives, you know, a, a different dimension to the song. And
1: so it creates kind of a fuller, a fuller sound. It does. It added textures and colors.
0: Yeah, like when you're playing the piano, it sounds different when you're playing like, you know, one note at a time as opposed to playing a chord. Like there's a difference between hearing or and you still hear that note, but then you're and that's what you're doing with harmonies, is that you're creating like more of like that orchestra kind of sound with your voice um, just by layering the different different notes.
1: What's the benefit from it being one voice doing the harmonies than multiple voices doing the harmonies?
0: Sure, like you mentioned, it's cost effective. <laughs> but other than that, I feel like especially in my experience as a performer, like I've been in shows where they're like, the voices are so vastly different that they're, the uh, the musical director is like, you need to work better on blending the voices. Some voices that it, it's just, there's such unique qualities in each person's voice that it doesn't always blend well. Uh, someone's vibrato might be too heavy uh, as opposed to like somebody else and it might, just be creating like a weird tone. Um, and if you're not familiar with the vibrato, it's like that little shaking like that, ah, as opposed to the straight tone of, ah. so depending on a person's voice, it might not blend well, but if you're harmonizing with your own voice, it's gonna naturally blend because it's your voice. Nice.
1: So then the other thing is in this song, and I think that there is a thought where if people hear a low sounding voice, they assume those notes are low. They assume if somebody sounds low, that those voices are low. But I feel like there are those um, deceiving sounds where you think it sounds lower than it actually is. Like I feel like somebody like Pink, people may think, oh, she's got a raspy, very chest driven voice. She's gotta be an alt or a low note singer. And that's not the case because some of her songs are ridiculously, blow me one last kiss goes like off the, off the, off the scales or whatever it is. Um, but so in this song, Soda Pop, is this song a lower female voice song? Is it an alto song? Is it a soprano? Who would benefit from singing this? What type of voice? Uh,
0: soda Pop is Definitely an alto song. Um, listening to it a few times, and I was kind of trying to listen to, to the lowest and highest parts, and I didn't really hear hear it going below a, a G below middle C, and the highest it went is up to a C above high C. So, and that's completely in an alto range. So it's definitely geared towards. It would be very comfortable for an alto to sing. Not all not all sopranos would be comfortable going that low to a G below middle C.
1: And so with that in mind, so I think that there's a thought that, um, you know, that on this song or certain other songs that, you know, people talk about this coined phrase, like the baby voice. Um, And oftentimes I have a discussion with people and say, just because it sounds baby or high, does it mean that it's a high soprano operatic note? Because Britney's voice she, I think the, the deep tones come from where it naturally sits in her, where it's less effort. And I think that's something to keep in mind that these, the altos, they know those sweet notes. They know those sweet spots for them. And of course they could hit some of those notes in sopranos, but it's a definitely distinct, different sound and tone when an alto is trying to hit those higher notes, especially for an extended period of time. So with Britney's voice during this like let's say baby album with baby one more time things like that is this album could you safely say this is an an alto's album
0: I think Britney is just an alto so I think anything she does even if she goes higher I I feel like she she is an alto singer in in my mind um mm-hmm. she doesn't she doesn't tend to go very high and and she does have like a beautiful lower range so and and she does have like that rich like lower um, notes, which a lot of like sopranos aren't gonna have that rich quality.
1: Well, and that's something that I think is important. It's all about these textures and these tones because I think that she has a very rich lower um, lower tone. I don't wanna say like lower register because I think that we might get confusing with this and that, but I think she sounds more full, a fuller texture sound when it's deeper. And I do think that comes from When she was talking early on, like her influences, she talked about Prince, Shaka Khan, Whitney Houston, Mariah Carey. It's these soulful voices. And I think we are all speaking, singing. I think we're all influenced in the way we speak or sing by what we hear. Um, And I think she always shines when it's her sweet spot, when it's those notes. She sounds like... Britney no matter what, this whole thought that a baby voice isn't Britney's voice, it's still her voice. Like, it's its confusing to me where people are like, no, that's not her real voice. It's like, well, all of these are her real voice. She can hit those higher notes. It's, will it sound as full as somebody who's a soprano hitting those higher and fuller notes? And the honest answer is, no, it's not going to. And to your point, a soprano, somebody who's hitting those high notes, probably won't sound good on soda pop. I think the thing that can easily get lost is, Britney is a vocalist. She is a singer. Whether you like it or not, she is. There's There's no denying that. And I do feel like a lot of times altos in general get the short end of the stick. Because you have these Disney princesses and all these people, they want these beautiful love songs that hit these high notes. And there's so much more depth in the lower notes. There's so much more stories that can be told.
0: Absolutely. I feel like altos often don't get enough credit for, like everybody is looking for that soprano. And now you go to like a musical theater audition, there's like a million sopranos and like hardly any altos because even people who are probably true altos aren't going in as altos and are are using their upper register because, you know, people are always casting a bunch of sopranos. But then when you have like those really good altos, then it's like, oh, wonderful.
1: <laughs> so Michael, can you play for the listener, that low note that you're referring to or kind of around that low note, and then that high note specific to soda pop?
0: Sure. Uh, the lowest uh, note I heard is uh, a G below middle C, which is so it'd be ah, uh, oh, we have a plan, we have a plan. And then the highest um, went up to a C. Uh-uh. And that was mostly in the higher harmonies that I heard that. It didn't really get there too much in just like the regular melody. I think, I think there may have been like a couple runs runs that, that kind of like touched it. But the common high note was a B flat. To go.
1: Well, and I think something that the listeners um might keep in mind is, you know, this was actually something music-wise, the singability of a song was something that was talked about uh in Jessica Simpson's reality series on MTV. There was an episode where she was working, uh, I believe on the follow-up to her debut album, and she wanted to go to church with these songs. And the label Columbia was like no, you need songs that people can sing on the radio. And she was like, but I want, these are the songs, this is the way I want to sing. And you have people like Pink who talks about early on, she's like, I think I sounded like a chipmunk on my first two albums because my voice sounded so high. You have Christina Aguilera who, when she sings, her and Kelly Clarkson specifically, their live performances always, always sound much Deeper in tone than on than on the record, and I think that has to do marketability. The the easier it is for people to sing a song, they'll they'll sing along with it. Mm-hmm. You know, we can't all sing emotion like Carrie. You know, she's one of those, um, you know, the the exception, not the rule.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Going back to this this tone of everything. When you heard, okay, so you have Britney singing soda pop, the main line, the, the melody. How many other variations? We talked about harmonies. How many harmonies is she herself doing during the song?
0: I feel like most of the time it was just two, at t- times, just like a third, maybe, and maybe just like a floating vocal going, oh, or something like.
1: Ooh,
0: over it but it wasn't it wasn't a ton of harmonizing um it was mostly like two maybe three part harmonies Um, but it wasn't consistently through the whole song or anything it just kind of enhances certain sections of the song
1: so when it came down to you listening to Soda Pop Live, and this was back in 1999, what did you think about it versus her vocals on the the studio version of Soda Pop?
0: Sure. Well, I, I have to say that those live recordings from...
1: 21 years ago.
0: Is it that long? The recordings were not great. So I had to listen to it a few times and I'm still like... When was she singing because it's so <laughs> blurry? I can't even see like if her mouth was moving. <laughs> um but I think that when she wanted to stay low, she would she wouldn't necessarily change the notes because especially on soda pop where she sang her own harmonies, she was still singing the same song, and it was still her part, but she may have switched to a lower harmony as opposed to singing the melody.
1: What do you think about the energy, the vocal stylings? herself as you know a 16 year old singer who did both of those songs what do you think the differences what are some similarities between those two
0: yeah with soda pop it's definitely a a different style than than the baby one more time and and some of her other hits from that album um she the style was more it, it was sung more in the way that she had been singing Growing up in, in those old, old videos, like I mentioned before, she, it was very full, more like it, it sounded more soulful. Um, and she she got to play with a little more with Baby One More Time. It's like this is pop music, how, how they wanted it. And I, I feel like she did it well, but it it did seem a little bit more produced.
1: Crazy to Baby, sometimes Born to Make You Happy. Those to me seemed very there's calculations and math. Max Martin is a hit maker. He knows, you know, what is going to work and what doesn't work. Not saying that that's going to be a number one hit every time, but there's a science in what he does. And I feel like every note that she had in, let's say, Baby One More Time was, this: you hit this note, then this note, then this note, then this note. Soda pop just sounds like they're like, let's just have fun. Because there's these oohs, Um, And for those that are listening, the best thing to do is, Listen to Soda Pop with headphones on. You'll get a different experience because you can hear these different parts that you wouldn't normally notice before. I feel like there's a freedom in her voice. And I feel like the song was important because her voice was different. There was no Britney, you know, at that time. And there was just something young, energetic, and just oddball that makes me respect her more because I feel like that's where she shined. In early interviews, she was always like awkward and silly and making funny faces. That was more of the Britney that I think was created in the studio. And when you look at, you know, whether it was YouTube videos or performances from years back or, you know, social media videos, she's always been an odd duck, which is what's relatable to her, that, her voice wasn't so intimidating that you couldn't sing and she had fun while she was doing it. And I think that's what makes her, her and separates her from everyone else.
0: Yeah, and like Baby One More Time, like you hear a lot of like that recognizable Britney sound from Baby One More Time, you still hear that in Soda Pop. And you hear that in other, like other songs too, Um, from when she was younger, that sound, but it wasn't the dominating sound of the song, like in soda pop. I think when they went to baby one more time, they're like, you have a, in my mind, what I think they're thinking is that this is, there's like this unique sound. You kind of pull that kind of like little younger baby quality, that little, you know, breathiness, uh, what a lot of people think of as like that nasal sound. And it's like, let's exploit that portion of your voice because you have it. We hear it in the other song, but they wanted less of that chest. And it's like, let's do all of this, like the majority of the song in this part of the sound that you only hear in bits and pieces of songs like Soda Pop. And let's make that the main part of the voice. And I feel like that was kind of the switch. Because you didn't really hear her sing full songs like that in her childhood songs. um, Anything before Baby One More Time, really. But you, there's always like bits of it in it. So you know, you know, it's still her voice. But it wasn't really how she sang full songs prior to, I think, them wanting to hear that sound.
1: Well, and by the way, it is one of the, uh, I think it is the first song that she recorded where that's, uh, you know, that's on this album where the Britney name is in there. And And it's like, because now we have, you know, decades later, it's Britney, bitch. But this song, track number four on her debut album, actually he name dropped Britney, and it's like, well, that's (laughs) fun. It's your debut and your name dropping. I love it. Well, uh, thank you so much, Michael, for uh, answering these questions, taking some time uh, to chat with us and kind of give the listeners some insight about the musicality of Britney Spears because I feel like that's oftentimes lost. So thank you so much for that. (laughs) Sounds
0: good. Thank you.
1: (laughs) So if you look at this song, and her debut album, well, Britney recorded her own vocals on every song she worked with with Eric Foster White. So when you go back to listening to the debut album, Baby One More Time, take a listen to Soda Pop, I Will Still Love You, It About You. You see, those, Britney Spears is the sole female backing vocals. Now, Britney sings backing vocals with Nikki Gregoroff on Autumn Goodbye and Email My Heart. It is not unusual for music producers to have a music track with backing vocals already recorded before the main vocalist records their part. Oftentimes, and in this case, if Max Martin is working in Europe, an artist might only have a few days to record their vocals with him. So what do they do? Prepare everything before the artist comes in. Britney Spears' sophomore album Oops was done in the shortest production time of any of Britney's albums. She was promoting her first album with a tour, and would have just weeks before the next tour cycle started. You see, flying back and forth to meet producers, well, that was not a possibility for her at the time, and Jive was striking while the iron was hot. On these songs, on the album Baby One More Time, there is no, absolutely zero, Britney Spears backing vocals. And this is all accredited. You can look through publishing, publishing house, all of those to see this. So, no Britney backing her own vocals on. You drive me crazy. Sometimes. Born to make you happy, and I will be there. All of these tracks were recorded in Sweden at Chiron Studios. Now, the songs that feature Britney backing her own vocals, those were all recorded with Eric Foster White, at 4MW East and Battery Studios. I bring this up because, as you can see and hear, there are two distinct sessions in this album. The first being the music and songs Britney worked on with in-house producer, Eric Foster White, and the second being those she worked on with Shayron Productions, which happened to be under Zamba Publishing. So, after hearing all of this, you may think, But is this song good? Is it worthy of a Grammy? Is it worthy of a live performance? Is it dated? My answer, that all depends on who you are and what your taste level is. What I can say with great confidence is that Soda Pop was important to the development of Britney Spears. It was a part of a group of songs that helped take Britney from a development deal with a get-out clause to a full album's option recording contract. And it should be noted that in the late 90s and early 2000s, you front-loaded your album with the hits. The first three tracks on Baby One More Time were produced by the Swedish music producers. Then we have track four, Soda Pop, written by Eric Foster White and Mickey Basie. Then you go on to the next track, track five, Born to Make You Happy, another Swedish production. Then track six, From the Bottom of a Broken Heart, solely written by Eric Foster White. Out of the first six tracks, five, five would become singles that would be released. The only one to not receive a music video? Soda Pop. However, Soda Pop did get its own shine. It would be added to the Pokemon, the first movie soundtrack in November of 1999, and, some may not know this, it would be pressed as a promotional single for Britney's wildly successful Doll series. Which is why I count this, Soda Pop, as one of Britney Spears' singles. It was given its own promotional disc. Very hard to find, but it exists. I will post photos of it on Instagram, at the.org. Original Dot doll I want to wrap this episode up at a nice bow. Soda Pop could easily be considered album filler. But the importance of the track, it should be noted in the success and vocal styles of the original doll, Britney Spears. I have a little fun trivia or info for you in a second. But first, don't forget to follow the Original Doll Podcast on Instagram, the.original.doll. And you can follow me directly on Twitter, at James Rodriguez, R-O-D-R-I-G-U-E-Z. Now here's a little bit fun information that I found during the researching of this episode. During the time of Soda Pop, the same writers and production team of Eric Foster White, Mickey Basie, with guitarist Dan Petty and mixer Chris Trevitt, they would create this song, I Love You Came Too Late by Joey McIntyre. See you on the flip side.